The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is brought to you by Higher Gravity, a craft beer bar located in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the north side and Blue Ash neighborhoods. And I don't know about you, Mike, but this is my go-to bar. It's my walking distance bar. It's the best selection of beer in the city bar. It is the mug club bar. It is the best draft selection bar. It's the best to-go beer bar. And frankly, the best bartender's bar. I love the one in Northside because... It is a fantastic place. There is a massive amount of beers on tap, a great bottle selection. I love it, man. Hard to find a place that still really loves beer, and they do it. And it's for that reason, we'll see you there. We'll be at the bar. We'll be at the bar. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Bruce Guys Happy Hour Podcast. My name is Brett Coleman Baker, owner and brewer at Urban Artifact in Cincinnati, Ohio. I am here with the one and only, the illustrious Michael Morgan. Mike, how the hell are you? I'm doing fantastic. Pretty geeked to be starting this season of the Bruce Guys Happy Hour Podcast, where we're going to get into the history of craft beer. And craft beer is something that is obviously very near and dear to both of our hearts. As professional drunks. As professional drunks, uh, first and foremost. But, you know, we also are involved with beer in, in a few different ways on a professional level. You more so than me. But, you know, you mentioned the fact that you are, are a brewer. I think it would be helpful if people got some understanding of what you do kind of professionally, where you came from, and what you're doing over there at Urban Artifact. Yeah, you know, it's easy just to be another schmo on the radio talking about radio, talking about uh, <laughs> whatever. Talking about it's modern beer. radio, man. <laughs> Pretending to talk about beer, blustering and bullshitting, which arguably we're great at. But, you know, I do have an engineering degree. I did work as an engineer for half a decade or so. While I was an engineer, I got a second degree in brewing science. And in between my full-time engineering gig, I worked as a part-time distillery assistant. I worked as a winemaker and all the while was building this business plan and developing our recipes and brewing procedures for Urban Artifact, which is, I'm happy to say, the country's largest sour-only brewery and one of the world's largest sour-only breweries. I can't really uh, feel good enough about that personally, and I don't get a chance to brag about it very often, so I do appreciate that. But we've built our brand, and i built my brewing knowledge on eschewing tradition and focusing on brewing science and pushing things forward and seeing where things could go, not where they came from. I'm not trying to mimic English-style ales. I'm trying to brew my own thing. But because of that, and through meeting and talking with you, I've realized I don't know a lot about craft beer history, which is really dovetail nicely into your background. Yeah, I started out my early academics, not nearly as impressive as, as yours. Uh, we are both graduates of Ohio University, both did ample drinking. <laughs> but, um, you know, I barely graduated uh, in, <laughs> in the 90s. But uh, uh, from there, I, I learned a lot about drinking, you know, in those the five years it took to get that four-year degree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from there, I worked construction, and I was a substitute teacher, and I attended bar, and I did a lot of bad jobs, and I realized that maybe a proper education was in the works. 
So I became an attorney. And I actually got into beer accidentally through the practice of law. And then, you know, the early 2000s, the craft beer scene in Cincinnati starting to come about. And I had some reasons to be involved with some of those breweries and, and really kind of helping move the scene forward. So I combined, you know, my own personal love of a good beer with some professional things I was doing on a legal standpoint. And then I also started doing the first brewing history-related tours here in the city of Cincinnati back in the 2000s. And from there, I wrote a couple of books about beer. So uh, beer has kind of become my thing. I'm now the beer professor at the University of Cincinnati. I teach class up there, not about brewing. You're the brewer. I'm the drinker. I teach, uh, I teach college students how to drink better beer and uh, give them, hopefully, uh, an appreciation of drinking better beer. I mean, that's what enjoying fine beverages or anything is all about, is the deeper your understanding, the more you actually enjoy it. And to really enjoy American craft beer, why not develop and further our understanding of it, the history of it, where it's come from, where it's going. And we've kind of stumbled into this through your teaching, where you would bring students by our brewery, and we found a love of over-serving ourselves <laughs> uh, together, and talking to students, and giving them tour, and bullshitting along the way. And lo and behold, you make a discovery, a historic discovery here in Cincinnati. Here in the city of Cincinnati, we have the largest collection of 19th century lagering cellars anywhere in the United States. So there are these huge, you know, subterranean tunnels where they used to age beer in the 1800s, mostly prior to artificial refrigeration. And we have a thing in Cincinnati where occasionally somebody just finds one of these spaces. You know, you can find 10, 11,000 square feet underneath your basement. <laughs> and I don't know any other city in America where that happens on a semi-regular basis. But they found one of these spaces a few years back. And what was unique about this one was that in addition to being sealed off for decades, it had an intact pre-prohibition wooden fermenter just sitting down there. And so when I was at your brewery with my students one time, you know, I brought up the question to you of whether or not it was possible that there were any living yeast strains still left in this vat. Possible, yes. Probable, no. Plausible, meh. <laughs> Basically, it's like finding a needle in the haystack if we were going to find anything. And the fact that there was even a wood fermenter down there. Like, yeah. these are dank old cellars. They are chilly. They are moist. There is just, it's dark. It's ripe for mold. It's ripe for mushrooms. It's ripe for things that eat wood. So the fact that this still existed... A hundred years later is mind-blowing. So, like, the odds were, like, okay, well, you know, we hit whatever, double aces, or I don't know what the sayings are with gambling. I'm not a gambler. <laughs> uh, so why not double down and split them, so to speak, and uh, go for broke, 
is there any other cliches of gambling I can toss <laughs> in here and look for this yeast and try to find something? So with our background in the brewing science and isolating wild yeast strains that we've already been doing for our brewery, why don't we try to do the same thing but pull something from this fermenter? And the more we talked about it and the more beers we had, the less crazy this idea sounded and the more awesome it sounded, at which point in time you called in a couple favors. Yeah. So I got a hold of my friend, uh, Dan Fennessy, and Dan runs a production company called 779 Video. And Dan brought in uh, a guy that he works with a lot named Adam Rabinowitz. And these two guys are our producers today, you know, here on the podcast. But they also produced this documentary that we did about looking for yeast in this vat. And, you know, as you said, it starts out with this idea that there is a very minuscule chance that we're actually going to find anything. And Dan, you know, agreed to do this just because he thought it would sound fun, although he didn't have big expectations of what was going to come out of it. Just some free beers. Yeah. Some good times. And we decided, you know, you took a bunch of samples. We tested a bunch of those samples. And then you sent those off to a mega yeast lab in Chicago to have them determine whether or not there was any usable yeast strain. That gave us, of course, an opportunity to drive to Chicago and get really hammered (laughs) (laughs) while Dan filmed us. (laughs) And uh, so we did that and, you know, wound up with some really unexpected results. Yeah, we actually found Brewer's Yeast, which is insane. The fact that we isolated, I don't know, it was like 40 to 50 samples. We got maybe 10 that were drinkable. There was some putrid stuff in oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> we got 10 that were quote unquote drinkable. We had five that we really liked and thought we had a chance. So we sent those five samples away. Four of them were just, you know, crap, candida, which is what causes yeast infections. Other yeasts that just aren't going to make drinkable products because they you don't have high alcohol tolerance or yada yada. doesn't matter. But one of them, one of them was Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the genus and species of brewer's yeast. A huge discovery. Can't even understate that, how rare of an opportunity and chance that was for that to occur. Now, it got checked. The genetics got checked against their backlog of yeasts, and they didn't see it matching anything with the subspecies they carry. So as far as we know, we either got a, uh, you know, a random wild yeast that was down there. Maybe it was the yeast they used to brew with. I don't know, but we isolated it. We banked it at Omega Yeast Labs, and now we can brew with it. We brought this piece of living history back to life for the city of Cincinnati. Uh, we gave it to the city officially, and that's pretty pretty badass as far as I'm concerned. So there's a documentary of this out there um, on the YouTubes or somewhere. Uh, we've got a Missing Link channel on YouTube, so you can find the documentary of all these exploits going on. And we had such a good time, and it was so successful, we thought, we need to keep the content creation going. Let's make Bruce Guy's podcast, and let's explore the history of craft beer. 
If you've enjoyed listening to the Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast, please subscribe and like our show on whatever streaming service you use, whether that be Spotify, Apple, or YouTube Music, or any of the other ones that are available. We would greatly appreciate it, and it goes a long way towards us being able to continue to produce this great content. We decided to kind of look at this history of craft, not just as a history lesson, but to answer a lot of the questions that we have about what, you know, why, what and why, like, where does craft beer start in America? Who started it? Why? How did it grow? And what does that say about broader stuff? I mean, what, what does this kind of love of craft and this love of small breweries say about our relationship as a country to corporate America and to business? And, you know, what does the changes in the law that have allowed craft to evolve and grow, what does that tell us about some of our relationship in this country with alcohol, which has always been a pretty weird relationship? Yeah, it has been. It's, you know, our puritanical roots, so to speak, in America has shaped a lot of things. The state's rights versus federal obligations type debates that happen as well. It's really led to a slow rolling out of craft beer and craft beer acceptance across our country. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, when craft beer was getting its start in America, in some states like Mississippi, you still weren't even allowed to homebrew, let alone have a tasty craft beer. It wasn't until 2012 in Ohio that you were allowed to legally have a tap room as a brewery. So these laws were stifling to these businesses. They were stifling to the creativity. And you can really see it in what we'll get into more of it is like, why did Oregon, why did California, why did Colorado become early epicenters? What made Asheville pop off in North Carolina? Why do these things exist regionally in our country? And how did it slowly get to the point where, I mean, craft beer is everywhere now. There's 9,000 plus breweries. It's right. It's uh I mean, it's a topic that gets lauded and people love to, to boast about. It's like, I got a brewery in my hometown now, but how did, how, why? What really draws me to this story about the history of craft, it's not just beer. I drink a lot of beer. I love beer, but I'm not some full-on beer nerd that is really um, intrigued by everything beer-related. To me, this is a broader story about how the craft beer industry is doing something that really bucks every other trend in the American economy for the past 50 years. Mike, I'm sure you've heard some squealing in the background, so you'll just have to excuse me. It's uh, daddy-daughter day today. So, I, I mean, I know you don't directly relate, but I, you can understand. So thanks for, for bearing with I me am, on that. I do. <laughs> I'm... I'm, I'm Familiar with what babies are. <laughs> <laughs> and how to make them. Uh, yes, I have uh, employed all the measures to avoid doing so throughout my life. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I know the podcast is usually uh, Mike and Brett, but today it's Mike, Brett, and Joanna. So, so thank you. I like Joanna. I think she's probably added some of the smarter things we've had to <laughs> contribute. <laughs> I mean, squeals and grunts probably say a lot yeah, more than uh, uh, my bloviating. Yeah, it's it's uh, not much more than we get out of a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but we really stopped as a nation 
prosecuting any of our existing anti-monopoly laws in the 1970s. And what you see from that is a very clear trend in a decrease of small businesses in almost every sector. I mean, my grandfather was part of that generation that fought in World War II, got out, and became entrepreneurs. And there was an astounding percentage of that generation, you know, the, the greatest generation, they were small business owners. Yes, successful my, small business Successful owners. small business owners. My grandfather didn't become incredibly wealthy, but he earned a very good living running an IGA. How many of those are left? You know, almost none. And it's, there's almost no, no IGAs left because larger corporations shoved them out. You know, they could just outbid them on buying power, and bigger grocery store chains drove out all of those independent groceries. And it's happened across almost every form of industry. It's the story of the American David versus the monopolistic Goliath. The old Budweiser frogs and Spuds McKenzie and the whole frat bro attitude that they were pushing in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. During the 1980s, you know, the, like, three largest breweries go from a 60-some percent ownership of the entire American market to an 80-some percent ownership in less than a decade. Like here in Cincinnati, it's a crazy statistic that between 1989 and 1992, Hootapole, which is a local Cincinnati brand, Hootapole goes from a 50% part of the Cincinnati regional market to a 10% part of the regional market, wow. just between 89 and 92. And what's that correspond with? Massive advertising campaigns by Anheuser-Busch and Miller. So there's this, like, just massacre of that local identity of a lot of regional brands that, again, is happening at the exact same time that craft beer is starting to take hold in places. And it's bringing back, it's going back to a more ultra-local aspect of the beer. Craft beer is like, no, we can do it better, and we're going to do it ourselves, and we're going to take this American ingenuity that supposedly exists, and we're going to put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to get our product in bottles, and you know what? I'm going to charge twice as much as Budweiser, but it's going to taste better than twice as good. That to me is, it's part of what the entrepreneurial dream is in this country. It's, it's, it's happened in beer where it struggles to happen anywhere else. And us being able to explore that, to see that, to share this story, to let people hopefully realize that, yes, maybe we can take these lessons in this history from beer and apply it to other industries. And at the same time, hopefully protect what craft beer has built over the last 30 to 40 years and not let sellouts and buy-ups and M&As eat up what has been so hard-earned. Because it's not, there have been those buyouts, you know, that famous one of like a billion dollars for Lagunitas, but you don't see the consolidation among craft breweries. We still have new startups every day, and not all of them are viable, but a, a lot of them are still viable. I mean, Apple... You know, yeah, it starts in a garage, but it then becomes a monopoly that crushes 
the the next startup, you know, the next innovators. <laughs> You're not you going to start the, the, the smartphone the, the, company. The, the, the company that Steve Jobs started would now crush the next Steve Jobs. And that hasn't happened in beer yet. But, I mean, it also, the numbers as of 2020 and 2021 are starting to look a little more precipitous than they did in 2018, 2019. The industry is maturing. What does that mean? I mean, maybe it hit its peak of independence around 2018, 2019. How much of history is repeating itself, or at least rhyming? We had this big explosion of breweries in the 1850s, and it looks very similar to what's been going on in the 2010s into the 2020s. So is there warnings from the 1850s, you know, of growing too fast and the consolidation is just inevitably, the big guys are inevitably going to come and just kick everybody's ass and things are going to go back to normal. Normal meaning there's five or six breweries again. Uh, or is this a real revolution? Yeah. Are we going to see the, the brewery on every corner forever? Are we going to say, right. or not every corner, but every neighborhood? which I don't see why isn't feasible. Why can't a small town of 15,000 people support its own brewery? Why can't a neighborhood in a bigger city that has 8,000 people in it support a small neighborhood brewery? It should be able to exist. The neighborhood, the corner bar exists and has lasted for centuries. Why can't our country get back to its roots where the majority of beer production used to be just down the block from you. And you would go and you would get your local. And once things changed with the industrial revolution, that kind of went away and things became more homogenized. And I don't think people like that, much as indicated by where craft beer is now. You look back in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, where you're seeing this birth of craft beer. I think that there was also a broader revolt against corporate America. You know, you have like the consumer rights movement comes out of the 1970s. Northern California is also the epicenter of, like, counterculture. So is, is counterculture part of what gives us craft beer? And, you know, is that kind of still with us in a way? I mean, the 60s are long over, but that idea of a brewery on every corner, even if you don't drink beer— I mean, doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even if you don't drink craft beer, you don't care. It's still important in regard to what it says about us as Americans and about what we're doing in our cities and towns. I mean, beer is one of the few things that we're still making in America, and I mean, how it might be the one thing that we're making increasingly more of. You know, I can't think of any other industry. Uh, a brewery is a manufacturing facility. Mm -hmm. I can't think of any other industry that has opened up more new manufacturing facilities than brewing in the past 10 years. You know, it's an anomaly. It really reminds me of with where our country has positioned ourselves as beer makers, we're some of the best in the world. And it reminds me of the Venetian glass blowers of centuries ago, where the Venetian glass was known as the best glass in the world. And more glass blowers were in this one city than anywhere else in the world as well. So you would think there's so much competition. There's so many people making glass here. How is it sustainable? Well, 
they all made each other better and they all pushed each other to be better. And then it becomes renowned. And then people travel from far away to get that glass. And then they start exporting that glass all over the globe. And craft beer in America is becoming that. We don't necessarily need a small city anymore to push each other because of how globalized the world's becoming. We just aren't by our very country pushing the boundaries of what beer is, exploring and adding more and more breweries at a pace that no other country in the world is currently doing. We are blowing up in a country like Germany with a long, long history of making an excellent beer shrinking as far as the number of breweries go. But we just keep getting more and more and more, and our beer keeps getting better and better and better for it. It really reminds me of that story, and it really makes me think that we're not close to the peak yet for craft beer. And I think by talking to people like Jim Cook and Ken Grossman and Fritz Maytag and Jack McAuliffe and learning about where we were and where their minds were at then... Hopefully we can take that point of view and spin it forward and kind of hopefully learn where we're going. I know selfishly, that's what I want to know as a brewery owner is where, where's my ceiling going to be, <laughs> right? Can I keep pushing growth like I'm doing? I'm just excited to see where it goes because we're making so much wonderful stuff in this country right now. Yeah, I think we have a lot of cool questions to answer and I'm looking forward to it. The history of craft beer is, is the history of America. It's American ingenuity. It's the American dream. It's the American entrepreneurial spirit. It's the American attitude of, I'm going to get shit done, and I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to do it bigger and better. And that's what it's all about. And that's what we get to explore and the people we get to talk to. And we get to hear why they lived that dream as well. And, man, it's just... Yeah, there's something bigger to it. So whether you're a beer geek or not, this is a hell of a story. This is a story about America. This is a story about counterculture. It's a story, uh, to a large extent, about fighting back against the man. And it's a story of how normal people on a small business scale can be part of organic growth and revitalization of neighborhoods all across this country. It is a story of the small guy and really what the American dream is supposed to look like. And it's a story of some people with a lot of guts and vision. I think it's going to be a good trip. We're going to learn some things. Yeah, hell yeah. Cheers to that. Cheers. The Bruce Guys Happy Hour podcast is a production of Bruce Guys Limited in association with 779, a leading video production and content creation agency. With over a decade of experience, 779 works with a wide range of clients, from global brands to boutique startups to mom-and-pop shops. Visit 779video.com for more information. That's the numbers 779video.com. This episode was edited by Dan Fennessy, who is also our executive producer. This podcast was engineered by Adam Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening.